Welcome to another episode of Nutmeg Book Drops Middle School Edition. I am Christina Carpino from the Essex Library Association. I am Chrissy Warringer and I am the Youth Services Librarian at the Derby Neck Library in Derby. I'm Valerie DiLorenzo. I am the School Librarian at Rumsey Hall, which is in Washington Depot, Connecticut. And I'm Janine Johnson. I'm the Library Media Specialist at Scotts Ridge Middle School in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Nutmeg Book Drops is a new podcast brought to you by Librarians Connect. Librarians Connect is a group of public and school librarians from throughout the state of Connecticut. Find us online at bit.ly slash librariansconnect. On each week's episode, we'll be discussing two of the 2022 Nutmeg nominees. Haven't had a chance to read this week's books yet? Stay tuned for a preview of each of the titles. Then pause the episode and head to your local library to grab these great titles. Once you've read them, join us for a spoiler-filled discussion of both books. This week is the final episode of the 2022 Nutmeg Book Drops Middle School Edition, and these last two books are all about self-confidence and loving the person you see in the mirror. What kind of internal struggles are you facing, and who do you turn to for support? We'll have some great and some not-so-great examples of support networks in this episode. Before we read the book descriptions, please note there will be discussions about eating disorders and self-harm, so listener discretion is encouraged. If you or someone you know is struggling with an eating disorder or other body image related self-harm, we encourage you to reach out to a trusted caregiver, doctor, guidance counselor, teacher, librarian, or other adult for help. You can also reach out to the National Eating Disorders Association by visiting www.nationaleatingdisorders.org or the United Way of Connecticut's 211 website at uwc.211ct.org. Our first book is Good Enough by Jen Petro Roy, published by Squarefish, an imprint of Macmillan Publishing Group, LLC. Before she had an eating disorder, 12-year-old Riley was many things. An aspiring artist, a runner, a sister, and a friend. But now, from inside the inpatient treatment center where she's receiving treatment for anorexia, It's easy to forget all of that, especially since under the influence of her eating disorder, Riley alienated her friends, abandoned her art, turned running into something harmful, and destroyed her family's trust. If Riley wants her life back, she has to recover. Part of her wants to get better. As she goes to therapy, makes friends in the hospital, and starts to draw again, things begin to look up. But when her roommate starts to break the rules, triggering Riley's old behaviors and blackmailing her into silence, 
Riley realizes that recovery will be even harder than she thought. She starts to think that even if she does, quote, recover, there's no way she'll stay recovered once she leaves the hospital and is faced with her dieting mom, the school bully, and her gymnastics star sister. Written by an eating disorder survivor and activist, Good Enough is a realistic depiction of inpatient eating disorder treatment and a moving story about a girl who has to fight herself to survive. Here's who our librarians recommend this title to. You know, my mind goes immediately to some of our, I hate to say it because there's probably some male readers that would want to read it, but some of our girls who just always go to that realistic fiction section. And uh, I'm thinking of some of our, our, our frequent flyers who are avid readers. I think that this book is going to take off once the first one or two kiddos read it. Agreed, Janine. I'm going to recommend this for sure to my middle school students. Ronzi's a K-9 school, so middle school realistic fiction lovers are really going to love this book. Yeah, I would say any kid who loves the journal format, the diary, kind of that that personal in-your-head kind of story, that's that's exactly what this is. I think anyone who feels that they don't fit in, whether that is because of how they look and they have self-image issues, but even if it's just that you feel like you're not talented enough or not, like the title says, not good enough for your family or your friends or your community, I think that this is a really empowering story for people who are just feeling a little bit left out. Also too, Christina, I think in addition to what you just said, Students who, because I've got a lot of them, they really, they're so open-minded and they want to learn about others. They want to, they're, they're, they're compassionate and empathetic and they want to, they want to read about other stories so that they can better connect with other human beings. I mean, they're, you know, there's a lot of them out there that are very precocious and wise for their age. Our second book is Genesis Begins Again by Alicia D. Williams, published by Athenium Books for Young Readers an imprint of Simon & Schuster Children's Publishing Division. There are 96 things Genesis hates about herself. She knows the exact number because she keeps a list. Like number 95, because her skin is so dark, people call her charcoal and eggplant, even her own family. And number 61, because her family is always being put out of their house, belongings laid out on the sidewalk for the world to see. When your dad is a gambling addict and loses the rent money every month, eviction is a regular occurrence. What's not so regular is that this time they all don't have a place to crash, so Genesis and her mom have to stay with her grandma. It's not that Genesis doesn't like her grandma, but she and mom always fight. Grandma haranguing mom to leave dad, that she should have gone back to school, that if she'd married a lighter-skinned man, none of this would be happening, and on and on and on. But things aren't all bad. Genesis actually likes her new school. She's made a couple friends, and her choir teacher says she has real talent, and she even encourages Genesis to join the talent show. 
But how can Genesis believe anything her teacher says when her dad tells her the exact opposite? How can she stand up in front of all those people with her dark, dark skin, knowing even her own family thinks lesser of her because of it? Why, why, why won't the lemon or yogurt or fancy creams lighten her skin like they're supposed to? And when Genesis reaches number 100 on the list of things she hates about herself, will she continue on? Or can she find the strength to begin again? Here's what our librarians had to say about who they recommend this book for. Well, I would recommend this to my middle school and up, you know, high school, maybe fifth graders depends, depends on the fifth graders because there's some pretty tough stuff in this book. Yeah, I would recommend this book to any child who is struggling with impossible beauty standards, especially colorism. You know, the thought of, well, I'm too dark or I'm too light or thoughts like that. It's definitely a really great piece of realistic fiction focused on impossible beauty standards, particularly for young girls of color. Yeah, I, I think um, this book has been has been quite popular here. And, you know, again, we have a big appetite for realistic fiction. It has been added to a collection that we purposely put together of diverse titles, by diverse authors about diversity, uh, but it was on the heels of a social justice unit for our eighth graders. I like the fact that this book also speaks to the challenges that Genesis is facing with uh, her home struggles, you know, and and that really adult challenge that she's dealing with, with, you know, dad is, is, is kind of disappointing her. There's many pieces to this story that appeal to, to middle graders for sure. All right, those were your previews. Head to your local library now to check out these books. If you've already read them, stay tuned for our spoiler-filled discussion coming up now with Good Enough by Jen Petro-Roy. It's worth noting before we get into the spoilers and all of that, that Good Enough is a story that deals with somebody who has an eating disorder, and it is written by an author who had personal experience as a young person with an eating disorder. So it gets into a lot of the nitty gritty of what the treatment is like for that type of an issue. So if you're somebody who, I know when I was a young reader, I enjoyed reading about medical stuff, but it is a little bit of a sensitive topic. So I want to make sure that people know that before diving right into it. You might want to make sure that you have some mental energy for this one too, <laughs> emotional energy. Well can said. I, can, can I ask you as librarians a question that I have that speaks to that? Because how would you go about handing this to a student that you think could benefit from reading it? Or would you not, you know, if, if you wouldn't just, right, hand this over to someone that you're concerned about, what are some ways that you would try to get this book into that student's hands? I mean, it, it, this clearly is a book that, I mean, on the cover, it says, you know, this book will save lives. And I agree with that. But it, it, because it's such sensitive material, how do you, and I've got my own ideas, but I'm really, I, I would love to hear from some of you. Guidance counselors, um, certain books, I will make a point of uh, even getting an extra copy and saying, I know you guys are busy, but I really recommend reading this one. 
and oftentimes they say thank you so much for pointing out this title to me. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I, same thing with administrators. I mean, I'll talk about books in staff meetings as well. So certain titles, uh, and actually this year for our summer reading recommendations, the list that is growing longer by day originated with a conversation with our school psychologist, kind of a, you can do this. We've, this has been a crazy year. Resilience titles, again, you can do this. So feel good. You could call them beach reads, but some of them are the story of students um, rising above and facing some really big challenges. And so that title is definitely going to go on that list. I, I think for me, you know, working in the public library, unfortunately, we don't have that resource. I love that method, though. That's that's just brilliant. I wish that we had resources like that, but that doesn't mean that we can't also work with our counselors at our local schools to do mm -hmm. that same tactic. So thank you so much for sharing that. I think for me, if I thought a child was struggling with this specific issue, I don't know that I would give this to them, specifically because I think this is a book that, yes, it will save lives, but only if given at the right time. If you give it to someone who maybe they're even a couple steps ahead of where Riley is, this book might set them back. I, I can't really make that call as a, as a librarian with the education that I have. So I think it would be more that I would display this book. I would definitely make it clear what it's about. And only if someone specifically asked me for, I'm looking for a book about someone struggling with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I, I don't think if I, if I suspected or anything like that, I don't think I would give it to a child just out of the blue like that. Great advice. Yeah, I think that I would actually um, be more inclined to give this to a parent or a caregiver because I think that this is a great story to build that empathy and to understand what may be going through the, the brain of a child or, or a younger person dealing with this because the author, this is based on her own experiences. So I think the internal monologue is like Christy's saying, it's so accurate that it actually may be detrimental for people who are in the thick of it. Reading about her doing the sit-ups at night, that could trigger, you know, I think, but I, I think that for friends and family members of someone with an eating disorder, I think this is a great book that gets that empathy going. There's a nonfiction companion to this that is also written by Jen Petra Roy. That's the one that I think that I would give maybe directly to the young person dealing with stuff because it's going to have more resources in it. It is meant to be a guide to help people in that situation written for a middle school audience. That's all great, great advice. And we have the benefit at my school of if students have been on, on what's called the effort list all year, they earn an effort book prize. And I give the students a list of suggestions, which, which always include nutmeg books. They can order any book that they want. And I just think it's interesting because several students chose good enough. 
So it's, de- it's already getting out there in my school, but I love, I knew there was a nonfiction companion. Haven't purchased that yet, but I will make sure that I get that one and have that displayed probably right next to good enough. Yeah. And you know, what? Well, something that came to mind um, as you were talking, there may be an opportunity in public libraries to, I'm sure you do this already, right? To assemble some books together that mm-hmm. speak to this theme rising above challenges and so on. Um, but then also if there's any programs that are happening that speak to these sort of challenges or psychologists in town, nutritionists in town, mm-hmm. you know, who are the experts in your community? maybe that might want to know about a title like this. The other thing that comes to mind for me is there are certain students you'll talk to who just love, there's a common theme, they love a story about struggling with decision-making. And that happened when you talk about the sit-ups piece, right? So she's really struggling with do I say something? Do I not? Am I a tattletale? And should I should I be participating in this too, right? So there's a lot of internal struggle. So how do kids get through that? And who do they turn to when they're struggling with those decisions? You know, Riley, while Riley is obviously struggling with having an eating disorder, she's also just struggling with self-confidence in general and a lot of different areas of her life. And when you have anxiety about something, then that can impact your ability to make decisions effectively because you're anxious about it. You know, when you're stressed about something, you can't just, you know, a decision as simple as what am I going to eat for breakfast becomes sometimes too much. So what is it that allows some people to be able to kind of move past some of this stuff and survive and be strong and other people kind of struggle with it? I mean, I don't know that we can answer that, but we can we can guess what qualities maybe does Riley have that allow her to overcome this? I think she genuinely cares about people. She's open to others. And I'm, I'm reminded of the advisory program at my school. That's a place where advisors are, we're really close with our advisees. And, you know, there are advisee sisters and, and, and brothers. And, and this would be a great, book to maybe have conversations about or, or any books like, like these, you know, and we often talk about, you know, making the right decisions. So when you're talking, you know, when you're anxious, right. And you can't make a decision, we talk about all that and how that's all normal. Mm -hmm. And then maybe just kind of putting it aside, but then continuing to talk when you can about a troubling situation or a difficult decision that you need to make so that you got to make a decision, right. Eventually. And then your life will continue on based on the, the decision that you make. So I think that those people that are willing to continue on, right, are the ones that maybe they do stumble. And I think that that's what Riley does. Riley stumbles a lot. And yet she's one of those characters who continues on, hits, hits a roadblock and, and continues to go on and doesn't just give up. And I guess that's maybe right? That's the characters. Those are the people that continue on. Even when you maybe hit rock bottom, you pick yourself up and you keep on going. Yeah. Just going to have to jump off of that because as you were talking, a very, very popular show came to mind with a very, very popular character. 
And what he said was, you must never give into despair. That's when you resort to your lowest instincts. But in the darkest of times, hope is something you give yourself. That is the meaning of inner strength. And I know I didn't get that quote exactly right, but anybody who's watched the TV show Avatar The Last Airbender should recognize the gist of a quote from Uncle Iroh. So that's what I think about when it comes to like, what is it that some people have that helps them? And it's just the ability to give yourself hope. I think honesty is so important because we see that Riley struggles with honesty at several times during this. And if you're not honest with your family, with your friends, with your counselor, with whoever it is that is in your life and trying to help you, and if you're not honest with yourself, then you're never going to be able to progress. So when Riley is keeping secret, for example, that um, her roommate is doing those sit-ups at night, then she's keeping that secret inside of her. And that's enabling her to then also kind of become an accomplice and also participate in that because she's already keeping it a secret. So then she may as well do it herself too. And that slows down her recovery. So I think once she opens up and is honest with how she's feeling, then people are able to help her because no matter how strong any of us are, or no matter how much inner hope any of us has, none of us can do it alone. So we have to be honest with those around us to let them help us when we need it. Speaking of people in Riley's life, so she has friends from home. She has the friends that she makes in the treatment center, and she has her family as well as the doctors. There's a lot of different relationships that build this story. How do these relationships help or in some cases hinder Riley's uh, recovery process? Did anybody else just want to shake her parents? Yes. Like so many different points, like getting their perspective was helpful because anybody who's struggled with any kind of mental illness knows that there are those people in your life who will sit there and say, well, but wait, aren't you just better now? Don't you just have like treatment that just fixes you and now you're better and we don't have to worry about it anymore. And that is just not how mental illness works. It is generally a lifetime struggle of what you deal with. And it was really frustrating to see her parents just treat this so simplistically when it's just not a a simple thing. So the way that they acted, I think, I know that they didn't know, but it makes me wonder when it comes to treatment plans, especially for youth, how often are the parents involved in the treatment plan? Because they need training too in how to help their child. And I wasn't totally sure that Riley's parents were getting all the training and help that they needed to help Riley. And that was, that was very troubling to me. I worked in a treatment center for adolescents in my 20s. And the families were... <laughs> always supposed to be involved and, and some were right. And, and some weren't, and that, that totally depends on the families. But when you first started speaking, Chrissy, I was reminded of that quote in the beginning of the story. There are no antibiotics that will get rid of my thoughts 
which are way too powerful to be silenced. They tell me I'm not good enough. They tell me to be skinnier and prettier, to run more and eat less. And for me to be able to understand that is just so helpful to understand people with mental illness, not just eating disorders. And that's why, right, we all love books. One of the many reasons why we love books so much, because it helps us understand what other people are experiencing, living through, and that there is no magic pill. That's just not the way it works. And so I never want to harm people. And I try to do as much as I can so that I can be helpful to those people that come into my life that may need some sort of help and help to guide them in the direction that they need. I think that may also open up an opportunity though to put the book into some parents' hands so that they can see examples of empathetic parenting. My guess is that she, she had a reason for portraying the parents the way she did and and the for me it would, my guess would be because that is how Riley was experiencing it another person in the room might say well you know mom didn't sound too harsh there but it's all about how the student is or the child is experiencing it right I, yeah, I agree there I think like that quote that that you shared Valerie that your inner thoughts can become overwhelming and when someone has an eating disorder like this, generally how you view yourself is not how others are viewing you. You have this skewed reality where you feel that you're never skinny enough, even though another person is going to think, see, and often think that you're too skinny or think something, you know, different. Your self-image is different from what others are actually seeing. And that could be the case with the parents here too. We are seeing things through this skewed viewpoint but I was very frustrated, especially by, by the mom. Um, I, I mean, I think that it's pretty basic that when your child is coming home from an eating disorder inpatient facility, you probably shouldn't mention being on a diet. Um, you know, that's, to me, that's, that's like 101. But what I really liked was Riley's friends from home. When they went out to dinner that night, I was so nervous because we see that other people in the facility have relapsed. And this is sort of like the night of will she, won't she, how is she going to handle this first night out? And seeing how supportive her friends were to me was was a beautiful moment. I loved Josie just basically stepping into Riley's thought process and saying, but hold on, you have your meal plan. What did you say you were going to order? Oh, this is what I said I was going to order. Great. You, you should just order that. If you want, I'll even order it with you. Like that is support. Like you don't talk about the skinny, licious menu. Like, well, it, it, it wouldn't be that bad to order something off of that. Right. Like, no, you step in, in the middle of where your friend is having those awful thoughts and break it. And that's exactly what she did. And she, she didn't even have any training. I, I don't think, but so that was, that was cool. I love Josie. <laughs> yeah. Have any of you read um, Neil Schusterman's Challenger Deep? That's another book that comes to mind that 
I would point that one out as well. That is, that's probably an eighth grade and up. It's a, it's a pretty advanced story. That's one of the other books that I've read where, and, and then in this case, it's, he's, he's eventually diagnosed with um, schizophrenia. That is a book that comes to mind where I, I finished it and I thought, okay, that is as close as I am ever going to come to being inside this person's mind and understanding what they're experiencing. Yeah, I, I think Josie is a great example for how showing solidarity with your friends, regardless of what it is that they're struggling with in that moment, that solidarity can go so far. And I know by the time this episode comes out, we're going to be out of June, but pride is something that should go year round. <laughs> you know, that that's what a big part of what Pride Month is supposed to be about is that as allies showing solidarity, you know, with people who identify as being LGBT community. And, you know, you see stories about, you know, somebody's going through cancer and the friends shave their hair. You know, there's so many different ways you can show solidarity. And I think just saying, I'm going to order the same meal as you what went so far so when you think about how those simple actions of saying like no you don't feel comfortable wearing that to school today that shirt because you think you know whatever i'll wear it to you know let's get matching shirts those little actions can really benefit your friends i agree with that the solidarity the friendship is so important but i also wonder too and i don't know the answer to this I wonder if ultimately the individual himself or herself also needs to be the one to make the decision because mm -hmm. that person may not have the friends or the family that are supportive, right? I know some people in my past like that, actually a great grandmother uh, who I can't believe what she survived. And, you know, it's nice to have friends and solidarity, but I think sometimes whatever it is, if it's hope, if it's honesty, but it comes down to an individual to make that decision to change his or her life. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so hard. And all of the treatment and the strategies, that certainly helps people. But I wonder if it's ultimately the, the person himself or herself that has to decide. It's like you loop back around to what is it that determines the person who can rise up and get through and the one who really struggles or relapses or whatever the case may be. That's sort of the uh, eternal question. Why do you think the author chose to portray somebody relapsing in this? I mean, we, we see that there's other people in the treatment centers who leave and are not successful. That's reality in treatment centers. I think it's really important that people realize that it's not a magic pill to go to a treatment center and you're going to get better. That's it. You're definitely going to get better because you're going to the treatment center. It's not the way it works. And I think it was really important for her, for the author to show that people don't always make it. And maybe, and how many, I don't remember the number of times, but you know, one of the characters goes back several times and that was eye-opening for Riley to hear. She hears that pretty early on. And I interpreted it as a motivator or one of the motivators for her. She really noticed when it became clear that there were people who were back multiple times. That wasn't even a concept that, that she was aware of. And it sounds a little bit cliche, but we're really big on, on 
this concept here, uh, you know, windows, mirrors, doors, life can be hard. <laughs> yes. Plain and simple. <sighs> I think that it was good to understand we don't always succeed the first time, but that doesn't mean you won't succeed. And I think that if we saw that everyone in the story succeeded the first time, then if you're going through something and you fail, you assume that that's the end in either or. You either succeed or you fail. And that's not true in most situations. I feel like we could talk about this book for like an hour and a half, but because <laughs> I have like eight more questions in my head right now. But I also know we have the author interview and I want us to be able to talk about, about Genesis again too. So we're going to switch gears here. I felt on edge the whole time I was reading Genesis Begins Again, and I'm, I'm wondering if anyone else did, but from that opening scene when she is so excited because she finally has some friends and she, they're cool and they're the cool kids and she's going to her house and when they get there, everything in her house is on the front lawn and there's a padlock. I, I, I just, I never thought about that. That was so, that image was so vivid to me. It's nothing that I've ever experienced. I never thought about that. It was shocking. I felt, I, I, I felt desperate for this girl. I couldn't believe it. And then the conversation that ensues and they truly weren't her friends. And, and fr from the get-go, I, I just felt like, oh my gosh. And then they, then they get to go somewhere else. They, they move to, you know, they're, well, they go to grandmother's house first and it's just miserable in between. And then they end up in this gorgeous palace. And I'm like, I'm just like, when is this going to come crashing down? Like, this is not going to last. Like I, 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 it just, I, I was on, I couldn't stop reading this book. I, it was so, it was really enlightening for me. It was hard, but it was, it just helped, you know, the whole windows door, you know, windows, mirrors, sliding glass doors thing. Like I really appreciated this book on so many levels. For me, the, the image that really stuck out that really made my heart pound was the scene with the bathtub and she adds bleach to the bath. And I was just, oh gosh, like, please don't let this hurt her. Please don't let this hurt her. And thankfully it didn't. But even just thinking about it again, it was, this is a very intense book for those kinds of scenes. There is self-harm in, in this book. Um, it's, it's not typical in the way that we think of cutting or, or anything like that, but there is self-harm in this book. And it's, it's really, really difficult to read about, but it's important to read about. That scene was really powerful. The bleach in the water, I'm going, no, don't do it. And I, you know, I know people can't see us, but I'm literally like my, I'm all, I'm hugging myself right now. I mean, that's like the, the way that this book is making me physically feel is just like, I do, I want to reach out and hug her. And, and I mean, I, I wouldn't, right. But, but I just, oh my gosh. And thank goodness for Mrs. Hill, her music teacher. Why don't we jump into talking about that relationship and how the relationship with her music teacher changes kind of the trajectory here. 
So music is a really important part of Genesis's life. She would sing with her father and I mean, she truly loves her father. And it was hard for me to see him as a horrible man because Genesis loved him. And I know like he did so much wrong, but they have that music and that singing connection. And when Genesis, and you all can correct me if I'm wrong, but when she's first in the classroom and she starts singing and she, I think she closes her eyes and she keeps singing and she's embarrassed. And I think that's when she runs off to the bathroom and like just wants to hide because she shared her voice. But Mrs. Hill recognized how incredible her voice is and starts giving her music and I won't get them right. You know, who, who was given the first musician, the first singer that was given to Genesis, but there were a couple of them. Yeah. I I think the first one was Billie Holiday and then she got some Ella Fitzgerald and then she got some Etta James as well. I no, I think, I think Etta James was the one that her dad was always singing but she was able to recognize it because Mrs. Hill gave her an, an, an Etta James right. um, album. Right. So yeah, no, she, she gave her just so many role models mm-hmm. to look up to and just some inspiration that I don't think she had prior to that relationship regarding music. Her dad sang Motown with her and would expose her to that. But I think that with Mrs. Hill, it was a little bit different because it wasn't just her dad saying, okay, sing with me. It it was still kind of about him, that that aspect of the music and in their relationship. But with Mrs. Hill, she was giving her music specifically with the intention of this is for you. This is this is about you. And I think that's that's where the big difference was there. She also, for the talent show, she was all excited to be with that girl group who were the the it girls, right? And then doesn't end up being with them in the end. You know, that was really important. So again, it's like a parallel of when she sings with her father, right? And then how she how she shares music with Mrs. Hill. And oh, it's just beautiful. Yeah, I think I think it was just wonderful. All these decisions that she had to make to put herself in the center of her own life. Like, yeah, I am the one who needs to be driving the bus here. I am the one who needs to make decisions for myself because as we were saying, her home life, she doesn't have a lot of control of what's going on for her there. And I think it's wonderful how she is finally encouraged, not just through Mrs. Hill, because Sophia helps her as well to recognize that there are some people here who are just going to try and use you. And you don't need to stand behind them. You can stand on your own. She had Troy as well. And he was so, remember when he was so disappointed in her, when she was looking up the lightning, the the cream that would lighten her skin. He's like, what are you doing? You know? And then, and then she did that. I mean, then, and that, that was after the bleaching incident and, and he, I can't use his language, but he so beautifully says in a way that she understands, like you, you were completely fine the way you were, what on earth are you doing? Like 
he sees her beauty completely. And why are you trying to change the natural beauty that is you? Yeah, I, I think the word he used, which was perfect, was real. You were real. You weren't trying to change yourself. You weren't trying to hide anything. You were real. And I think that's one of the big things that Genesis is dealing with throughout this whole novel is just looking for something real, whether it's her own self-image and how she feels about herself or real friendship or real family trust. Like those are the big issues that I see in this novel that she's just searching for. And I don't think she's found all of them by the, the end. She's, she's done, she gets quite a lot done, especially on the friendship aspect. I think there's definitely still a lot of work with the family trust, but her dad opening up to her a lot more by the end of the novel, I think is, is definitely a good start goes back to that honesty piece that we were talking about with the, with the past novel, you know, that you need to be honest with yourself and with your, with your family members. And that communication is the only thing that's going to bring about the change. I think when we realize other people have struggled with the same things we're struggling with, even if it's in different ways, I think it's her mom says that she used to be teased for being too light. And then her dad has also experienced being, you know, having, having people say things about his skin color. So understanding that everyone has gone through this in one way or another allows you to maybe feel a little bit more comfortable that you're not alone in this, this feeling, even though no one should have to feel ashamed because of, of how they look or the color of their skin. So a talking point that, that I had put on that was just, I wasn't totally surprised, but at the same time, it still felt unexpected to me. I was expecting Genesis to win the talent show. I was expecting it. And then when she didn't, I was kind of like, okay, Troy won. I love Troy. Am I okay with this? So I just wanted to see how everybody else felt about that. <laughs> I have to be honest, there are times, maybe this is the teeny tiny little bit of curmudgeon in me, I don't know, <laughs> but um, there are times where I wonder, when did the publisher step in? Like, what was the author's intention from the beginning? I felt the same way, like, she's going to win, that that's just going to be the, you know, go out with the sunset ending to the story. And okay, so there's good that can come from the way it played out. From what I can remember, she's genuinely happy for him. She is, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I ended up feeling kind of like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for whatever challenge comes next for her. And she is stronger now. I don't know, I, I felt hopeful at the end. But yeah, a little, you wanted her to win. Yeah, just, just I mean, at least place. She, she, she didn't even play. She didn't get second place. She didn't get third place. She was yeah. just. Yeah, that's I one was, of those like, things where you want to get the author in front of you and say, so what's up with that? Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I was okay. You were, okay. <laughs> I was okay. I was okay with it. Because I feel like she won. Like, as herself, she won. She got up and sang beautifully. 
that's all she, that, does it matter to that anyone else? Like, that's fair. I mean, just for her to, for her to get there, she was breaking the rules to leave her house. So I, I was okay with okay. that ending. It didn't bother me. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a good point that, you know, she won in a much bigger way as opposed to the talent show. But I was also genuinely happy for Troy. And the other thing, too, is that do we think Troy would have won if he didn't take Genesis's advice on what to play? Because he played a classical piece to try out. But then when he actually played in the show, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was not a classical piece. <laughs> so maybe in a way she kind of won a little bit with that, too. <laughs> I think she did. I think he did some sort of experimental, right, music. And, and, and he says to her, I would not have done that if you didn't call me out and say, hey, you know, do something different, right? Yeah. Something that really struck me throughout this as just a really useful book for educators and librarians to read as well is just how Genesis is going through her day at school and she's got her gym teacher talking to her and yelling at her. And meanwhile, she's worried about her father being drunk at home or worried about how they're going to lose their house again. And it's just, we as the adults need to understand that when we're dealing with children, they oftentimes are dealing with very adult things as well. And it's really important for us to recognize that, okay, that child is not paying attention to what I'm saying right now. There might be a reason for that other than, you know, oh, they're lazy or they're just not respecting me or something. You don't know what's going on with that kid at home. And I think it's really important for us to keep that in mind. I had a moment like that at the beginning of the pandemic where I was thinking about how we were feeling this uncertain, this constant level of uncertainty where we've all experienced uncertainty at some points in our lives, but this was a new literal constant sense of uncertainty that affected a lot of people, regardless of how much money you had, or regardless of how good of a job you had, or how good of a home you had, there was still this constant undercurrent of uncertainty. And how we all felt stressed because of it. And a lot of people were commenting online about how, you know, they couldn't focus on their jobs, or they couldn't focus on the things that they normally would focus on. And everyone just wanted to go out and get a Nintendo Switch and play Animal Crossing and escape. Um, <laughs> that is how some of our kids feel every single day. And it could be because of so many different situations at home. But when you're a child and you are dealing with uncertainty in your life, it makes it impossible for you to focus on the everyday tasks. And I think that all of us as adults now maybe have a little bit of empathy towards that. And I hope that we can apply that moving forward to everyone we meet in our lives, because I, I, I agree with you, Chris. I think that's so important. 
that's why we we talk so much at our school and i think from what i understand many schools in the country these days about sel right social emotional learning if you don't come to school well fed well rested feeling loved and supported you're, you're starting from a place that's going to make it challenging to learn and so how do we check in how do we help students learn those tools how do we practice it how do we become more aware of what's happening in our brain and with our emotions and label it and so on? You know, there are some people that feel that that should all be handled at home. It's not happening in a lot of homes. So it's gotta happen in some way in our schools and hopefully at home as well, the team effort. Everything that you're all talking about, that's, I, I, I always remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? There's a certain amount of security, right? Shelter and, and that we have to have before any learning takes place. Otherwise it won't take place. The other thing I was reminded as, of as the three of you were speaking was going back to that trauma piece that her father had such traumatic events happen to him. And I don't remember exactly but that's why he became the way he became because of that trauma. And that's another thing that individuals need to deal with and it needs to be handled professionally. Otherwise you just, you never get past it. And that's the way our brain works and it manifests itself. Yeah, that's an excellent point about trauma spreading if it's not dealt with properly. And it's something that Genesis notes she finds out that her grandmother mistreated her dad because he was so much darker than the rest of her children. And now he takes that out on her and tells her, you were supposed to come out looking like your mother, your mother's lighter, your mother's beautiful. What happened with you? And these things, they just keep going down the line if there's no interrupters. And I love what Janine was saying about social emotional learning and just how important it is for us as educators to be a part of that kind of learning because parents are not always capable of helping in that regard. And that's where we can step in. I have frankly a lot of hope for a lot of these kids. I think versus our generation. strikes me as a whole lot healthier. I think coming back from COVID, it's going to be super necessary in this next school year and beyond. I think the school library, frankly, and the, and the public library and books are going to be even more important in kids' lives. And now, an interview with Jen Petro-Roy, author of Good Enough. We are here with Jen Petro-Roy, the author of the 2022 Middle School Nutmeg-nominated book, Good Enough. Um, and so thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be nominated. <laughs> I feel like I'm at the Oscars. 
<laughs> if only we had a red carpet. <laughs> <laughs> so Good Enough focuses on the treatment of, of eating disorders. And this is a tough topic that there's really not a lot written about for this age level. Why was this story so important for you to tell? I think that was one of the major reasons I have noticed that there really isn't a whole lot out there for eating disorders for middle schoolers. And a lot of it kind of focuses on high school or the college age group. And, you know, especially now when people are seeing body image concerns start as early as elementary school and disordered eating happen so early and, you know, kids going on diets when they're, you know, seven, nine, you know, I think it's just so important to realize that a lot of these body issues and self-esteem issues start off in, you know, this elementary middle school age. And I think middle school is that time when you're really crystallizing your identity and who you are in relationship to your peers. And since comparison is such a big aspect of, of eating disorders, it's kind of a really important age group to introduce that concept to. Personally, myself, I have also, I've, I had an eating disorder and I am fully recovered from one. So personally, it was something that I've always wanted to write about. And it took many years, you know, past my recovery to feel kind of safe and comfortable enough to write about it. And I thought this was the perfect age group to kind of direct that towards. One thing that I personally found really interesting with this novel was that Riley definitely experienced body positivity issues. And there was issues with peers teasing her and calling her rolly roly-poly Riley and things like that. She also was suffering from self-esteem issues that did not stem from her physical appearance. And I think that that's definitely something that a lot of middle schoolers find too. These self-esteem issues run rampant in middle school, (laughs) unfortunately. Absolutely, yes. So I imagine that there was a lot of, of research that went into this book. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, about the process with that. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I wanted to get across in this book is that eating disorders are really difficult and they're a journey, but that there's always hope for recovery. I think, you know, through Riley's arc in the book, which was, you know, included, included a lot of ups and downs as her, you know, kind of thoughts changed either over the course of a week or the course of a day, even I just wanted to kind of give the readers the sense that, you know, there is hope because I think so many books for older kids kind of focus on the, like the gritty part, like, you know, the details of someone descending into illness. And, you know, I don't think readers need to hear about all that, that angst because it's hard enough when someone's actually in it. And I think the kind of the rising up and the hope is so important, especially for this age group. And like you said, the self-esteem, it's, it's so, you know, it's so difficult. And a lot of what people I think still don't realize now is that eating disorders, yes, they are about food and, you know, it's important to eat and, you know, you need to nourish your body and be aware of that. But a lot of the issues that cause them don't really arise because of food. You know, there's been research that a lot of it is genetic. You have a family member who has had an eating disorder, you are more likely to have one. If you have other conditions like, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, you're more susceptible to an eating disorder. And because, you know, self-esteem issues are so rampant in middle school, you know, especially now with the rise of, you know, Snapchat and Instagram and filters and people like trying to, you know, make faces and appear in a certain way and get likes, you know, it's just so common for different anxieties and self-esteem issues to be kind of channeled into how you look. And that's such a simplification of eating disorders. It's not all about how you look, 
But I think that if someone does have some anxiety or some self-esteem issues in their life, it can definitely come out in that way. So when I was researching this, I, you know, part of me, I look back on a lot of my old journals and thought a lot of my own experiences and kind of how I had gone through this. And I talked to other people who had struggled who were male, who were transgender, who had, you know, and eating disorders in larger bodies, you know, who struggled with a variety of different things. Cause I wanted to make sure that I portrayed both Riley's journey and her fellow patient's journey in an accurate way. Yeah, I really appreciated how we saw not just her journey, but like you said, the other patients as well. And like you mentioned before, too, the idea of hope, we even saw that there were people that relapsed that ended up having to come back for treatment, but there was still a a great element of hope to that. There was still the idea that even though you might not succeed the first time at overcoming this, there's support there to help you and you can still succeed. Yeah. And I think that's so important because I think that a lot of people, when they, you know, get sick with any sort of mental health issue, it's not necessarily like, oh, you know, you take a pill and you're cured. A lot of it is battling with your thoughts, you know, daily. And I tried to really get inside Riley's head to show that because I think that, you know, when I was suffering myself, it was really hard to explain my mindset to a lot of people, how I wanted to get better and I wanted to recover, but I just couldn't make myself do the things I needed to. And I think it's really hard for people to understand that mindset unless they're in it. And I tried to kind of get across that as best as I could. And it's really discouraging. I think for some people when they maybe go into treatment and they're finally at the place where they want to get better, but they still relapse because it happens, you know, it's a part of life. Your thoughts can get in the way your the eating disorder can hijack your brain. You can get discharged and go home and maybe one of your family members is dieting or your therapist cancels an appointment and you, you know, you don't have someone to talk to and that eventually could lead to a relapse. And I just wanted to kind of portray that, you know, it's hard, but it's possible. And there are always people out there who are willing, willing to help. And I think that's why I kind of chose to set it at a treatment center because I was trying to kind of get across how it's definitely up to Riley to help herself but it's always important to ask for that help as well. And I think that applies to so many situations in a middle schooler's life as well. Definitely. So at the same time that you published this title, you also published You Are Enough, which is a nonfiction on the same kind of topic. So what was your reasoning for publishing both books simultaneously? And how was your writing process different for the nonfiction title? Yeah. I mean, so my publisher was wonderful enough to buy the nonfiction title soon after because I'd actually started to write uh, good enough. And I was thinking, you know, to myself, like, you know, I'm glad this will be something that middle schoolers can see themselves in. And it made me realize there aren't a lot of self kind of like self-help books out there Mm -hmm. for middle schoolers who are going through either struggling with the eating disorder or disordered eating or even body image and self-esteem issues. A lot of kind of the stuff about, you know, disordered eating is out there kind of a lot toward an older audience or toward parents, you know, how to help your child. So I really, I thought it would be a good idea to have kind of something out there for them to kind of look at either along with it or on their own, where they could realize that it's a part of growing up and you're not the only one who may be going through it. And, you know, my goal for that was also to really make it as inclusive as possible. And it wasn't necessarily toward the thin white girl. I mean, I am a cis white female myself, but I, so I wanted to make sure that I, you know, presented all of the ways eating disorders can affect people. 
all sorts of bodies, all sorts, you know, all genders, all races, all sexualities, Mm -hmm. and just make sure that it really tackled those stereotypes that I think people have been, you know, recently realizing have been there. Definitely. I know that we have probably, you know, a lot of listeners and readers who have experienced or are experiencing body positivity issues. What advice do you have for them or just for how we can kind of improve body positivity issues in our society as a whole? That's a big question, huh? (laughs) So I think the biggest thing is for everyone is just to think about the things that are special about them. One of the biggest issues Riley has that kind of partially led to her eating disorder was she compared herself a lot with her younger sister Mm -hmm. who is this gymnastics superstar and she didn't really like she felt amazing at anything and I think that in our society there's such a push to always to excel and be like the best at something and be great at something Mm -hmm. and you can't necessarily do something just because it's fun and I think when I was starting to recover one of the biggest things that I was trying to think about was you know what do I enjoy doing and not necessarily what, what am I great at? What am, am I getting an A plus on this? Am I, you know, doing, you know, getting awards for something, but what are some things that you enjoy? And I think sometimes getting out of your own head and focusing on the things that you have fun with and that make you feel alive, it can kind of start getting outside of your body. You know, a lot of things for middle schoolers, I think, especially now when there's so much looking on Instagram and Snapchat and all the social media is I really recommend kind of diversifying your feed. Like don't look at the Instagram accounts of, you know, famous models or movie stars, but you know, there are a lot of accounts out there of people in different size bodies and people who, you know, post inspirational quotes. And if you kind of fill your, your feed or your life with all different sorts of bodies and all different shapes and it, it becomes normal. And so if you're not criticizing them, it's, you know, harder to criticize yourself. And I think the biggest advice I would have is to admit if you're having a hard time, one of the reasons it took me, you know, many years to fully recover was because I was such a perfectionist and I always wanted to appear like I was doing well. So it made it really hard for me to admit when I was struggling, which made it even hard to pull myself up which just led me down. And I, you know, I relapsed just like, right. You know, um, you know, a fellow patient of Riley's does in the book. And I think just in trying to start normalizing a culture when it's okay, not to be okay. And it's okay to ask for help in any sort of way is just so important. Yeah, definitely. I think it's hard enough for adults to do that. And it's even <laughs> harder when you're, when you're in middle school and feeling that, all eyes are on you at all times, you know, to admit that we don't know what we're doing. It's very difficult, but none of us can go through this life alone. We all need help no matter what age we are. <laughs> and I, I still need to be reminded, you know, these people don't notice if you have like uh, your shirt is wrinkled or something like that. You know, no one's looking at you. They're looking at you, the, you know, they're thinking about themselves. Exactly. And I think that this title was just it's just so great. It really wraps up. I was, I was thinking about, you know, a lot of Riley's emotional issues and that's what it kind of all boils down to is we're all always wondering, are we good enough? And are we good enough for ourselves? Are we good enough for our families, for our friends? But then, like you said, you know, we don't have to be great at, we can just enjoy something And I think that that's kind of a cool, you can flip it the other way to say, you know, whatever, if you're trying your best or you're enjoying it, then you are good enough. 
Yeah, exactly. And what, it, what is enough even, you know, like what, is there a bar out there? You can decide the bar for yourself even. Exactly. Because it, that doesn't really change, you know, no one's expectations necessarily of, of Riley change, but her view of where she is in relation to, to being good enough is what changes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So you were a library, a fellow librarian, yes, <laughs> which I love. So what inspired you to make the switch from kind of promoting books to writing them? I, I was one of those kids who always wanted to be a writer. You know, I read nonstop as a kid and I always kind of had this dream to be a writer. I thought it would be so cool. Writers are my idols, but I never really kind of thought it would be that possible because there are people who are already writers. Like you couldn't become one. They're just out there and they're, you know, these people on pedestals. And so I always kind of started writing stuff and then I never really finished because it got really hard. And after I had my first daughter nine and a half years ago, I was home with her, you know, I was on maternity leave and I started writing a little bit and I didn't finish anything. And then I took a little time off from being a librarian for a few years to be with my daughters. And I, well, you know, she was, my older one was napping. I said, okay, you know, why don't I write? Cause it was like something I could do for me. And I finally finished my first book, which was not good enough. Um, It wasn't my debut book, PSA Missed You either, but I kind of, I kept writing and it was something I just realized that once I finished my first book, I really enjoyed it. And it made me feel like, oh, like I, I just loved doing it. And it was something I turned into a career at the moment. I would love to go back to librarianship one day. But once I was working on Good Enough and You're Enough at the same time, it was really hard to juggle two books and a job. So I was lucky enough to be able to stop for a little bit. And like I said, I would like to go back one day, but in the middle of a pandemic is a little difficult <laughs> at the moment. So we'll, we'll see where yeah. the future holds. <laughs> but books uh, are always going to be part of my life in some way. Yeah, def- I, I know the struggle of trying to find an ending. I'm a NaNoWriMo level author and that mm-hmm. I try to do NaNoWriMo every year and I often am able to get 50,000 words down but I rarely am able to have an ending to my story. <laughs> it's so hard. I admire the people who do it. I can't, I've never done NaNoWriMo because I put like <laughs> little I guess um, tidbits of Riley's perfectionism in there but I get so stressed out at the like oh my god I have to do this every day and I think my writing styles I need like at least one or two days off a week to kind of let my brain breathe a little bit. So I've never been able to do that because it just, it really just stresses me out. So I admire that so much. Yeah. Different people do things different ways and that's all okay. (laughs) Um, So I'd love to hear a little bit about your latest book, Life in the Balance, which came out recently. Uh, And I'm sure readers will love to, to explore that one next. Thanks. So that came a little, it came out a little more than two months ago, which wow, that went by fast. So that Life in the Balance is about Veronica, who is in seventh grade, and she is a softball player, and she's always played softball. Her mom was a college softball player. Her grandmother played softball. Her great-grandmother was in the All-American Girls Baseball League. So it's kind of this thing that's been part of her life, and she's really loved it. And she's finally old enough to try out for the town travel team, because she's just hit 12 years old, which is the kind of the cutoff. And she's super excited. And she finds out a few weeks before that her mom is actually entering rehab for alcoholism which isn't much of a shock because she's noticed things going on. But what is a shock is that the family is may not have enough money now to pay for all the fees and equipment related to her team. So 
kind of in the middle of dealing with this upheaval of her, her home life, she's stressed out that she won't be able to continue with softball, which is this thing that her and her mom always shared. So she teams up with another girl in, in town, the best, the best softball player around and the, you know, the, the best softball player in the league. And they decide that they're going to enter the town talent show to see if they can raise some money. So Veronica can hopefully pay for her own fees. In the process, she realizes that she really loves singing and she actually isn't sure whether she wants to continue to be so competitive with softball. So kind of at the same time as her mom is finding balance in her life, Veronica is trying to figure out what she really loves and whether giving up softball would be a betrayal of who she is. So a lot of my books kind of deal with similar themes of, you know, Mm -hmm. finding out who you are, being true to yourself, stuff like that. But I really, really enjoyed writing this one. It was really fun. That sounds awesome. And the reason, I mean, those themes are just so resonant with middle schoolers. You know, you're trying to find what your interests are, who your peer group is, what you're good at, what you love, and just who you are. You're kind of becoming a little mini adult, so. And adults are still figuring that out too, I guess. (laughs) Yes, yes we are. See, we're not sure for librarians or authors here. Exactly. (laughs) We can be both. There you go. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I know that all of our readers listening to this episode will probably have already read the book. But if you haven't read the book yet, definitely go and check it out. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on these books or any of the others we talked about in previous episodes. You can email us at librariansconnect at gmail.com. You can also find more information about this podcast as well as links to other episodes on our website, bit.ly slash librariansconnect. Be sure to ask at your local school or public library next spring so you can vote for your favorite Nutmeg nominees. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep reading.